All right, let's uh, start with a reading of Malachi. Just because I get bored with the sound of my own voice, can anybody else read 3.6 through 3.12 for me? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows... Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Just a quick little bit of setting here uh, that is not in the notes. Notice that the last several verses give you a historical context or setting for... um, the time that Malachi or God speaks these words into the nation of Israel um, through Malachi, right? They are struggling with a time when the devourer um, is destroying their fruits and their soil and the fruit of their vine and their crops and other things. They are experiencing uh, financial hardship. They are experiencing economic hardship. And of course, both of those, particularly at this time, are translating to basic needs are not being met. And uh, it's difficult. And um, as is often the case, the way the goodness of the Lord is manifest in the lives of his people is uh, reflected in in how the surrounding people view them, right? So other nations are looking at them and going, (laughs) how can your God be any good? Look, he's not caring for your basic needs. Um, And so that's really the context that this is in. And obviously we're going to be talking about tithes and contributions over the next two weeks. Don't check out on me on that one. I know that uh, it's not an exciting one for me. I'll just confess a, a, a few things about tithing in my own life here real quick so that you understand my um, frame of reference. Angel and I um, have always tithed. Um, you know, doesn't matter what the percentage is, but it would definitely check the box on pretty much any pastor's, uh, you know, that's what you're supposed to tithe list. And, um, and to be honest, I have always felt like that was a bill. Um, um, you know, it, it's it's one I it's one I pay because I feel like I ought to. I have a conviction that I ought to, but it's not one that I terribly enjoy. Um, and it always takes a little bit of effort to remember that I really am blessed by the ministry of you know Pastor Gabe and now Pastor Doyle. And you know, I wish we were doing. I, I hope, I pray that we are doing everything we can to prepare. Uh, again, lost in my own sentence. I'm not off to a good start here. Um, I pray that we are doing everything we can to encourage and care for Pastor Plumley as well. And then the many ministries that I don't really know much about, um, to be honest with you, with regard to uh, needs-based ministries that we do. I, I, those thaw my heart and give me some delight in uh, 
providing the tithe. But otherwise, I, it just feels like a bill to me. And so separate from our tithe, um, Angela and I have always um, taken on investing in people's lives. That is primarily through uh, individual missions giving. Uh, we have our own set of half a dozen missionaries that we have supported for a range of Actually, I feel like we just added a couple. So um, a range of a few months to uh, a range of uh, about 25 years, about the full duration I've been married. Um, and those are always delightful to me. I, I, we love that one uh, because we feel like we're really investing in a work that we can kind of watch and scope and see. And I just feel like that work, that money is being used to care for God's people in a unique fashion, very consistent with uh, a lot of the giving that you see in the New Testament. You say, why'd you tell me all that? I just want you to understand what my frame of reference is so that you're not suspicious of me as we work through here, that I have some agenda one way or the other. Um, I can only, if you say, well, what should I do? I'm going to respond to you, I don't know. I think in the New Testament it's largely a, a subject of conscience, but you know, the only thing I can tell you is what I do, right? And and, and uh, whatever you take from that, you take from that. Whatever you leave from that, you leave from that. Um, put a period on that. That's that's where I stand on that issue. Um, I think I have some surprising things to say to you about it or maybe interesting things to say to you about tithing. Um, most of them will come next week. Um, and lest you panic... Um, because I know this can be a very sensitive issue in churches, I went ahead and passed my notes on to the elders about two weeks ago and basically said, hey, guys, I don't want somebody coming back to you and getting upset and having you get upset, so here are my notes. Are you okay with this? And I got uh, thumbs-ups. So don't don't panic. I'm not out on a, uh, a ledge here. Or at least I don't think I'm out on a ledge here. I didn't tell them I paid my church tithe is a bill that that maybe didn't come up as a conversation you again feel free to either mute or edit that just you know all right uh with that said let's get going the normal section that we start with is the disputation form it uh is a, a complex one or a compound one um and we'll come back to why that's interesting in a second um the general assertion is that you have continually turned away from my commands for generations and not kept them. All right, that's there in that, that first uh, verse or so. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, and that, that's, uh, you know, I'd love to spend time on that, but it's not the main focus of this. Uh, the Lord in his communication with Israel pretty much always comes back to that. If I were to change in the way that you're constantly changing, I would just destroy you. Right, And the only reason you are not destroyed is because I made a promise that I would be faithful to Abraham and do a work in his people. I do want you to notice the annihilation type of destruction here. And it, it appears in at least two places in this passage. The Lord is basically saying, I will destroy you as an entire people. I will start with the root of Abraham, and I will destroy that entire tree. That's what he's talking about here. And so the part that I just want you to notice is when he says, I haven't changed, he says, I will be, he, he said, I made a promise to Abraham to, to preserve and to multiply his, his branch, his tree, however you want to say that. And, um, and I do not change. And so therefore I have been patient um, in what I am doing. 
Um, so just to try to help you understand why why does God not changing? Why does Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, you know, so you got to kind of put that together with is not changing. Why is him not changing a means by which the children of Jacob are spared? Well, because he made a covenant with Abraham and he made a covenant with Jacob and he's preserving that covenant. And if he were to change and annihilate those people according to their desert, right, then he, he would have to go against his promises previously. Um, you are not consumed. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew and the Greek translation there both warrant you are not finished. You are not utterly finished. And that's, that's a part of the support that I get for that idea of how, how much this is talking about an annihilation of the entire people, right? You, children of Jacob, are not utterly finished, would be a, a reasonable, literal way to read that passage. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. What, what is the reason for his grievance against them? He cites it right there in that verse. What is his, what is his foundational reason? The rejection. Uh, specifically, though. You're, you're right, but from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So what is his specific reason? The they well, they the just did not obey, right? It's important. I, I've memorized Malachi 3.10 for years, right? Um, uh, over 20, actually. And um, it's based on a study I did of this passage, and it, what key to it wasn't what central to it really isn't about the tithing as much as it is about the obedience, right? The Lord is confronting his people with simple obedience here. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And, and he says a bunch of other things and he gets down to 310. Therefore, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. It's hard to do this in the ESV. I memorized it in the KJV. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing for you until there is no more need. In the King James Version, and this is perfectly acceptable from the original languages, it said, pour you out a blessing that you shall not be able to receive it. In other words, it's too abundant, right? It's, it's too abundant. You, you won't be able to receive the fullness of it. It, it, will be, <laughs> it will be beyond you. So I want you to get the juxtaposition there between obedience and tithing, and it's established right here in that, that first verse. I'm way off my outline. Um, the assertion, the general one, is that you've continually turned away from the commands for generations and not kept them, and then returned to me. The question they ask is, how are we to return? That's a relevant question, right? Um, and his specific assertion in 3.8, right, right at the, if you break it up into three parts, it's the first two parts there, uh, first two sentences maybe, 
will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. So they say, how, how do we return? And he says, well, stop robbing me. Um, they ask a follow-up question, how are we robbing you? And his response is, in tithes and offerings. And the implication that we get from this is if we bring our best and first to God, he will grant great abundance. And there's a piece of me that writes that, and there's maybe a piece of you as you hear it that goes, that seems pretty transactional. It feels a bit like some of the tenets of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And you're right. It does feel transactional, and it does sound a little bit like that. But before I retreat from that, and I am not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel guy by any stretch of the imagination, by the way, just to be clear on that. But before I retreat to a perversion from a perversion of a thing, I would like to just be able to state what it is first, right? Malachi 3.10 is unabashed. You bring the fullness of obedience, the, the prescribed obedience into my house, a, a, a significant portion of which, and we'll look at this a little bit later in brief, a significant portion of which is meant for the care of my people and the enjoyment that I can have with you when you bring it. You bring that into my storehouse, and I will open you the windows of heaven. I will pour out a blessing upon you that does not originate here, but originates there. And all I mean by that source of origination is, you hand me a blessing here, and I feel like it's going to immediately be mitigated by, you know, moth and rust doth, doth corrupt, and on and on and on. And don't get me wrong, this is in the context of crops, right? He's not talking about pouring out some ephemeral, glowy thing that, you know, I can't really spend and I can't eat and doesn't keep me warm at night, right? He's, he's clearly talking about full provisioning. But Malachi 3.10 is unabashed in it, right? You bring it, and I will open you the source of all goodness, unimaginable goodness, and I will pour out a blessing upon you that you shall not be able to contain it or receive it. You don't have storehouses sufficient to store up the goodness that I have prepared for you. Oh, well, that's, that's an eschatological promise. Sure, it is, but you, you have no basis for limiting that verse to purely eschatological fulfillment. There's no basis for that. You are trying to fit something that you think and feel or that you think you heard, or maybe you did hear falsely, into the scripture that you're reading. It's fairly plain. I have a grievance with you, and my grievance is that for generations you have not obeyed me. Well, how have we not obeyed you? You haven't brought your tithes and offerings. Bring your tithes and offerings, and I will open the windows of heaven. And I'm going to keep saying it, by the way, because I just love it. And pour you out a blessing that you shall not be able to contain it or receive it. Wow, I read that so differently. So did I the first time, and then the light bulb went on, and then I memorized it. <laughs> no, I, I just, I read it as, as bring me your tithes and offerings, but if you look, you know, back into Leviticus when they talk about the tithes of offering, you're supposed to have the land, it's supposed to be with you, you're supposed to, you know, you have to lay your hand, you have to confess, it's like, there's supposed to be a heart behind it. They're supposed to, and I always thought that, bring me, you, you disobey me, how are we, we're giving you our tithes and offerings, which is what, you know, how are we robbing you, how are we robbing you? I was thinking that they were, they were at that point, the that's what I meant by the rejection, I guess, is that, yeah, they may be bringing their tithes or offerings, but they had no 
heart behind it. And I think that that's, I, th I really thought that that's what he was talking about. Like, you bring, but you rob me because I don't care about the material part of it. I really care about the heart behind it, of which you are so far from me. I, I, I actually don't disagree with anything you just said. As a matter of fact, I'm going to drive some of those same themes okay. with, with specific scriptures as we move through the pages. I would argue that your statement is not distinct from mine. Mm -hmm. Obedience is not formalistic religion. Right, going through the motions. Right? Obedience is not... There's my stinking tithe. Right? right? Obedience is not shaving off the limit of my income at the very cent that I believe is necessary in order to get God off my back. Right? Obedience is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, both in Deuteronomy, Timothy, and Hebrews. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's, it's throughout the scriptures. And so, like I said, I, I take no exception to anything that you said. I, I think you summarized this passage fairly well, actually. Well, thank you. <laughs> the only comment I would make there is be careful not to... This, this is going to sound harsher than I mean it to, so give me a little grace here. Be careful not to make sentimental the, the scriptures here. The 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 the, um, the assertion is is pretty plain. Matter of fact, the assertion is clearer than than what's being said in Malachi three ten. The assertion is that you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That, that's not hard to understand at all, is it? Correct. Right. Um, and and uh, so I, I'm, all I'm saying is when I'm saying don't make it sentimental is just make sure you ground exactly what you said because I think it's exactly right. Make sure you ground it in the concrete okay. assertion okay. that's being made there, okay. right? There's a duality though there, right? It's interesting that he says that you turned aside from them and not kept them. Like, is that is that repetitive? Is it saying the same thing or is there two aspects of that? Because you could, you could keep something without yeah. really following it, right? So yes. I think that kind of captures what Dana was saying, that yes. there's a heart attitude there that you've turned aside from it, and then you've also not done the action. Yes. That's good. That's true. Uh, I think you... Did you have a oh, question? Oh, I was making sure she had her hand up for a while, so oh, I wanted to oh. hear what she had to say. <laughs> you got, when I take these off, bigger motions, okay, guys? <laughs> Big, bigger motions. In Hebrew, there's like sometimes they use repetitive words to do emphasis. Sure, what's repetitive here? Uh, the turned aside and not kept. I would go back. I would go back to what was previously said. Not really repetitive, dual or parallel, but not repetitive. One, words. yeah, that's right. One you have turned aside, right? You instead of going in the right way, and the other is, and you also haven't I mean, kept them. I mean, like linguistically in the Hebrew, are Same. those words? Yes. Very distinct. Okay. I looked it up. Yeah, yeah. That's Very awesome. distinct. Can I get a shortman's podium? <laughs> this is just this is a discriminatory podium. I just I I pictured the whole class pulling out their cell phones when I step up and being like, "Look at our midget teacher here." Um, okay, um, completely threw me off. Cut that out, people. Oh, let's uh, 
let's dig into this a little bit. The, the structure and the theme of Disputation 5, which is this one, or Incision 5, is very similar to Incision 2. And so I've summarized it there, um, a little bit of customization, but the table was largely taken out of one of my commentaries. Incision 2 was insincere worship, and it was manifested through inadequate offerings. And that was the one where you bring to me the things that were sick and were dying and were taken by violence, and you offer those. And the priest, it was mostly an assertion against the priests. Like, why do you accept that? That, that is not acceptable. You are supposed to be guarding the holiness of the Lord, and you are basically mixing it with your own judgments about what's good enough and what's not good enough. You're accepting it as a letter of the law obedience when it manifests no heart for God, right? If, if I tried to use your words to synthesize that argument. And it's a compound assertion very similar to this one. It literally has almost an identical structure, right? Um, the one is bringing it into the temple of the Lord. The other one is bringing it into the house of the Lord. There seems to be a, a more personal aspect to this fifth disputation. He addresses it to all the people. Now, clearly, all the people were being talked about in, in, uh, in the second disputation as well, because although the priests were receiving wrong offering and accepting wrong offering and condoning right, wrong offering, who was bringing it? Right, the the people, people. Right? So the people were clearly being disputed with as well. But here he makes it very clear and he's talking to all of the people of the nation. In uh, two, you're bringing it to the temple. In three, you're bringing it into the house. Um, I take that to mean that the Lord is amplifying the personal affront of this disobedience to him. You, I have an issue with you, right? Not this priestly structure, not this regiment, not this religious practice. I have an issue with you and how you are approaching our your relationship with me. Um, in both of them, he discusses the nations around them. In 114, the charge is that they're cheats. Um, in uh, 3, 8, and 9, it's that they rob him. You'll notice that there's a curse associated with both of those. Um, and I just want to, not because every time the word curse occurs, you should think of the Garden of Eden, but I just want you to notice that the Lord called his people to himself to enjoy him in particular and, and amazing relationship, right? Totally provided for. And, and, and um, I hate to use the word intimate because I feel like it's sentimentalizes. <laughs> Is that a word? Um it makes sentimental this idea in a way that I'm not intending to do. But he called his people into perfect relationship, and they thought they could do better their own way. They thought God was keeping something from them that was good, or they were deceived into believing that. And the curse came, and what did it offer? It offered separation. Well, it's not a far leap to this one, right? Um, the Lord curses these people, and what happens there? He leaves them. You say, well, where's that? Well, it says, return to me, and I will return to you. The necessary implication of that is that he is not with them, right? He left, he left in Ezekiel, right? That's right. He, he left in Ezekiel. His glory left. Um, so I just want you to see that aspect of it up there as well. Uh, there's a blessing that's promised in both of them. Uh, there's a threat uh, in both of them, and that is the destruction of them, their decimation, if you will. 
Um, we talked about that, that utter, utter annihilation there in that previous verse. Um, and you, you see it in you know, 3 6 um, here, uh, but you also see it in 2 3. There's an appeal to the patri- patriarchal age, right? The, the children of Jacob is how it's phrased here. And from the days of your fathers, right? So he's, he's very much reflecting on um, his covenant work through the history of these people for many generations. And in um, Disputation 2, he's talking about his covenant and the law. And in this one, he's talking about his statutes and decrees. Uh, not terribly relevant, but I just uh, happened to notice this morning, it wasn't in my previous notes, but when I was uh, doing some checking this morning, uh, Ezekiel 44, 30 through 31 actually and it specifically disallows the priests from taking offerings that have died of themselves or been torn by wild animals. And that is the very thing that in 114, the Lord says, you cheat me, you, you accept this. All right, so let's, that's kind of the structure of it, if you will, um, a framework, a logical framework, if you will, uh, for understanding this. Let's dig in a little bit to what it's actually uh, saying. It is fundamentally a call to return to God. We went over the first bit, for I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your forefathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Right? And we already discussed the, the next statement. Despite generations of rebellion, the Lord has determined that he will be faithful to his covenant. And he, he won't just bear up under these people. He offers what seems like a fairly, I mean, notice the, I'll say the simplicity of the statement at the end of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you. There's not like, return to me, and do this, and do that, and have a bunch of bloodletting, right? It's just, return to me, and I will return to you. And then this amazing promise that he offers them, you know, not this waiting period, or probation period, or there's no sorts of begrudging goodness here. It's like the Lord is, is almost damning up his overwhelming goodness because he's holy, right, and can't be unjust in what he does. But, and this is, this is not an accurate mental picture, so <laughs> be careful. But I nonetheless get this mental picture of this awesome tide of goodness, this overwhelming flood of goodness and the Lord exerting himself, actually. And I don't usually picture the Lord exerting himself. Like, we talk about him, you know, struggling with Satan. And I'm like, he's not struggling. Like, there's, there's no effort at all, right? You know, you just, you know, Satan, you come here and talk to me. I'll tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And you go only that far. And that's the end of it. And when I'm done with you, I'm going to yank your chain again, right? So I don't often think of the Lord exerting himself. But in this particular instance, I do. He's exerting himself, to magnify his holiness by holding back his overwhelming goodness consistent with his justice. Now, there's a whole mouthful of words for you, right? But I hope, I hope that you've followed that. And he's basically saying, just, just return. Just return. And I will, I will stop exerting myself to hold this back and it will pour out on you 
in a way that you can't manage. Then he went away for a while. <laughs> Say again? I said after Malachi, he, was, he went away for a while. He, he did. And then comes back with Jesus. <laughs> he, he did. I'm, I'm deliberating over how I want to finish up this quarter, just along oh, those sorry. lines. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. I'm deliberating over it because Luke picks up Malachi. Yeah, he does. Um, matter of fact, he, and I, I know I've said this, but he does it uniquely. Uh, above all the other Gospels, he picks up Malachi. And it's difficult for me to not see Christ as this promised blessing of Malachi 3.10. Absolutely. Um, but it was a time period between them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, at a time period when the people did not return. Right. right? As a matter of fact, we're going to touch on some New Testament passages that say these very same verses, but in the New Testament. So returning to me is the primary injunction, right? Return to me. It's not, you know, grovel in your sin or, or you know, it's none of the normal things that you would have expected from an angry God. The primary injunction here is to return to me. And then tithing addresses how this is to be accomplished. Um, but ultimately, the people have left off obeying God, right? So the means by which they demonstrate their obedience is tithing, but it, it's important to see the obedience as, as the activity that God is uh, condemning. Zechariah 7, 11 through 12, give us a little flavor here. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Diamond hard hearts. And notice, notice how it's written too. They refused. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears. They made their hearts diamond hard. There was specific positive action. I will not listen. I will not listen. I will not hear God's word this morning and respond. I will not open my hand to the Lord. Contrast the Zechariah passage with John 14, and an extended passage, but I only have a few of them quoted here, 21 and 23. And this is the, you, you, you all know this, right? This is a lot of the abide in me, and I, I will abide in you. And that's repeated several ways during that passage. Verse 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you see the echo of the themes from Malachi there in the John 15 passage? I do want your love. I want your whole heart. Right? I don't want this letter of the law. I don't want formalistic religion. I am sick to death of those things. You guys know the Psalm 51 passage. Right? I desire not sacrifices, right? but a contrite heart. 
A broken and a contrite heart I will not despise. And that's repeated multiple times in the Old and in the New Testament. You see that. You see the, the requirement of obedience here from Christ's own mouth. In a New Testament context, you see a requirement for obedience to the commandments. And the result of that obedience is that God will manifest himself to us. He will make himself seen by us. And further, he will make his home with us. Does that not sound like return to me and I will return to you? Listen to my words. Do not make your hearts diamond hard. You know what I thought is interesting about this? And this is a little conflated, so bear with me here. But I do see it in my own, I guess I see it in my own life, and that's what inspires me to, or provokes me to make my next statement. Diamond hard hearts feel nothing, right? You're impervious. How, how many of us are like that? How many of us have a consistent cycle of conviction and repentance in our lives versus how many of us have kind of a, a steady, I don't even know what to call it, mundaneity is the word that comes to mind, right? Some, what did you say? I said ambivalence. Yeah, that's a decent word. I like that. That's a decent word. How many of you are refreshed by times of, of utter conviction? Lord, I am a man or woman of unclean lips. I, I have seen you exalted by your word, by the testimony of, of other Christians by your activity in person X and Y's life. And I am, I am feeling crushed right now by the fact that I understand all too well that all I deserve is your judgment. And then, but that's what Christ is all about. Lord, thank you that I can be right now cleansed from that and then make the next statements, right? Because you know, Isaiah 6, if you didn't realize, that's what I'm kind of referencing here, right? I'm a man of unclean lips, and God sends the coal to cleanse the unclean lips, right? That's God's action. And the very next statement is, send me, use me. Use me and use all that I have. Let me be a sacrifice that's a sweet savor for your glory. How do I work for you? How do I follow you? How do I walk in such a way that I enjoy you and live in the fullness of the cleanness that I now have and never have to return to, to the guilt? How, how many of you live in that refreshing cycle? You notice I call it refreshing. I think it's refreshing. Versus moldering on the vine, like so many of us do. Do you hear God's word? Or is your heart diamond hard through either lack of attention or deliberately because you know he would ask you to live differently if you did it? Maybe not radically differently, but differently. Your diligence at work would change. Your service in the church would change. Your service in your neighborhood would change. Your testimony in your community would change. You would have to put away your fears and doubts and wants. You would have to put away all that sorrowful speech and actually start speaking words of praise and thanksgiving for the Lord. You would not be able to focus on all your ailments and sicknesses. Your depression or your... Mm, I almost got carried away there. I will not make my next statement. 
your, your depression or your syndrome or your malady may still be a burden that you have to ask for grace to carry, but it would no longer be your identity. Your identity would be entirely in Christ, and all you would know and feel, that's obviously too superlative a statement, but you get where I'm going, I hope. All you would know and feel is that you were saved by the power of God to serve him as one who burns brightly for whatever duration he has for you until you have, I'll say, burned out. But I'm not sure burned out is the right thing because it suggests an end. This would be more like elevated, elevated <laughs> transformed. I don't know what the right word is, right? I'm, I don't want to be goofy, whatever the next word should be. The only words that come to mind seem goofy, so... I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna finish this section and then I'm gonna make one more statement that's probably gonna get me in trouble. And if you don't all stone me, then I'll, I'll try to explain it and then we'll see where I get to. Colossians 3, 1 through 17, just a couple of verses here. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, notice that, if, there's a, that's a conditional, right? In English it doesn't mean something, but in real language, that's, that's a logical construct. We even have cool words for it when you learn how to exegete scriptures. Which I'm not going to share with you because they're just obnoxious. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then there's this long list of things that you should not be doing. And it's followed by a long list of things that you should be doing. In other words, obedient actions that are in accord with your nature in Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. I just want you to see what it looks like when somebody is overwhelmed with who they are in God and is singularly focused on knowing and serving God, of walking an obedient life. And I, I guess I pick that verse mostly because I know I fall into it, and I think a lot of us do. We, we live fairly separated from sin, or, or at least you know most of them. Uh, we all struggle with, uh, what does uh, that one guy call them? Bridges calls them acceptable sins, right? If you've not read the book, interesting book. Is acceptable sense? Respectable sense. I think that's right. I think that's right. Are you sure? I can't remember. That's why I'm asking. Um, I think he's right, though. Right? I, 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 I'm not talking about those right now, because those are sometimes hard, hard to identify in our lives. We usually need somebody else to come alongside and go, really? Really? Um, but a lot of... You're right. Um, a lot of us, um, you know, we're, we're, we're separate from the unrespectable sins. We're <clears throat> struggling with the respectable sins. And, and so we feel pretty good about that. But our lives are not manifesting the thankfulness that is the quintessential character of God's people. And so that's why I picked that one. 
because I think it goes to the heart of who we are in Christ. If you, if you can walk out of this room today saying, I am obeying God to the best of my ability, and as a result, in the midst of the trials of my life, which are real and significant, and need God to speak into them, and need the help of his people, and all these other things, I am rejoicing in who God is and what he is doing in my life and who I am in him and the body of believers he's given me to struggle with and what he is accomplishing and fill in all the other blanks that are relevant to your particular experience. James 4, 3 through 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Gee, that sounds an awful lot like return to me and I will return to you, except it's in a New Testament construct. I want you to notice that there's two sets of activity here. You draw near to me, or God, and he will draw near to you. I don't know what Martin Luther meant by faith alone, grace alone through faith alone. Yes, I've studied it. Yes, I heard the Solas sermon last week. Yes, I have books by Martin Luther and Calvin's Institutes and Edwards' works and on and on and on, right? Yeah, I got it. I, I got it. But if those men knew God, there isn't one of them that believed that knowing God was a static activity, meaning I don't do anything and all gets done to me. Because it's inconsistent with the scriptures. Malachi 3, return to me and I will return to you. You return to me, and I will return to you. Two parties, two actions. My undoing, faith alone through grace alone? Absolutely not, because it's directly in Scripture. So how do you... you... I I don't. Remember, we had that discussion early on in this class. I feel no need to harmonize two things that seem like they contradict each other in Scripture like that, right? I feel no need to do that. Well, I guess I I respect that. I feel like, you know, I I see the... We're first. Return to me. It's always return to me first. Like, I showed myself where you come back. Um, But, but, you know, Ephesians 2, it's like we we really cannot come back unless it is given unto us to come back. This would this conversation never would have happened had God not first made the covenant with His people. Right. Right. And even on an individual basis, we 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 naturally, even though Romans one makes it very clear, we all see who God is in in everything that we are and have and see and witness. But to really truly be give you know faith is not of us it is a it is faith alone but it is a gift from God so no one can boast which is I think that's where uh, there's that classic free will versus but faith isn't static it never has been static no faith is not static so even if it's faith alone faith alone is not a static thing it's a constant repentance of I suck God help yes <laughs> like right? to put it bluntly yeah. um Sorry, I do that too. It's okay. I've been listening to uh, N.D. Wilson. I don't know if any of you know him. If you don't, he's got a book called Tilt to Whirl and another word called another book. It's like a second in the series called Death by Living. And it's raw. I I mean, it's good, but it is raw. And he basically has that sentence in his second book. So that's why I was laughing. I was like, oh, there it is again. (laughs) It shocked me the second time, too. Um, 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, highly recommend those books if you haven't read them. Indy Wilson, Tilt to Whirl, and Death by Living. This but but how, how mankind is different from the angels, right? How how is mankind different from the angels? Right. Why, why did God create mankind to, to glorify him in a different way than the angels? So if we're trying to justify or like understand what part of this is action, it comes down to that difference between men and angels. Interesting. Right? Because we weren't just created. Like we have, we, we're different in that way. And so I think understanding like predestination and justifying that with the nature of man and how we were created is difficult because our brain probably just can't comprehend that it's not really in our space of comprehension um, but it comes i think it comes back to like, why did god create man what was the purpose and that there is a volitional nature in, in man's choosing to follow the mandate that we were created for. i have a in addition to being short in stature, I'm small in mind and poor in word, and I am never going to be able to resolve these grand theological questions in the next ten minutes. <laughs> and if I could, wow. Um, but I have a metaphor that works for me, and I'll share it with you. And it does not try to reconcile the two. It just establishes the nature of the two things. Okay? And the two things are God's action and my actions. God's necessary actions and my necessary actions. We are all in a boat, but individual boats. Like, you get your boat, and you get your boat, and you get your boat, and everybody's got their own boat. Because I don't want to be in a boat with you. (laughs) Especially you. Um, We're all in a boat, and we're all rowing toward the cliff, a waterfall. A, a, like, devastating, destructive, never-going-to-make-it kind of waterfall. And the Lord says... There's, there's destruction out there. You should all turn around. We don't think so. Right? And we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going. And he amps up his call and his plea and the assistance and help that he is willing to provide and that he does provide. And even in the midst of that, even when he gets a hold of some of us and shows us his goodness, we keep rowing in the wrong direction. And the Lord saw fit to magnify his glory by saving some through his own sovereign will. We didn't turn around. We didn't, we didn't get it one day and turn around because we were smarter or more delightful or more sensitive or more perceptive or more spiritual or more desirable or better looking or anything else, right? He just chose to latch on to some of us and turn us around and pull him toward himself. That that is fundamentally the message of God's sovereign work by grace to save some. Okay? Okay. And he and he says those that he saves are for his glory. This is a little bit to your point. And those that he destroys are for his glory. Stop. When God turns men around, and women, by the way, sorry, that's just harder for me. When God saves us, we row toward Him. It is the nature of those He saves. Imperfectly, stumbling, falteringly, foolishly, disoriented, deliberately disobedient sometimes, but we row. 
And what God requires of us is that we row with all of our hearts. And in every place where we fail and lack, he is there. That's, that's grace on the other side of a transformed life. Right? That we, that we just put it all out there and trust him to make it all up. Make, make up all the deficit that we have in our own lives. I don't have a problem with either of those statements. I didn't see anybody wincing. Now, I'm not wearing my glasses, which was kind of nice because somebody may have been like, I don't think so. And I just couldn't see the facial expression, although I don't see anybody wincing too much. You're always a little sour, so it's hard to tell. Um, I don't think we struggle with either of those statements. But we somehow fall apart and start picking one over the other when you try to harmonize them. Stop it. The two truths stand in Scripture, and they are undeniable. The scriptures are filled, filled with teaching on both of those fronts. Let them be what they are. You let God be who he is in salvation, and you run. You fight. You train. 1 John 2, uh, a couple of verses here again. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments for all that is in the world, pride and possessions. And that's a list, by the way. This is the third in the list is pride and possessions. So I don't want you to think I'm deceiving you, right? All that is in the world, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I specifically included and called out pride and possessions because it comes to this, right? I don't want to give up my substance to the Lord. I... I, I I don't want to give up what I really care about to him. And it's true of money and possessions, but it's also just true of obedience. I'm only willing to go so far with my obedience. I'm willing to obey you here and here and here, but that doesn't work the way I want it to. And that's not actually why I want you, God. I want you, God, to give me what I want, not what you require. I don't actually trust you enough to believe that what you want is actually the best good for me. What's the point of these verses? I I just want you to get this. We talk about obedience in the Old Testament. We're all like, of course we're talking about obedience in the Old Testament. But we live in this New Testament where there's no law, and it's all grace. And don't tell me that there's a requirement on my behavior in order to be right with God. Well, I'm sorry, but there's a requirement on your behavior to be right with God. Do any of you actually have a problem? I mean, don't answer. I just want you because I don't, don't I don't really answer. care. No. <laughs> yeah. Do any of you actually have a problem with that? I think some of you should actually do this. I think you do. I think there's always areas in all of our lives where there's struggle, but at least I think because when you really have been saved and you recognize that you were one of those few that he actually chose to turn around because by nature we're not going to, and our nature has been changed to want to turn around and row really hard. Um, I think that we we at least are of the capability now of seeing that. Like before we would have never been like, what's wrong with this? We know I don't have a problem with that. And now at least we can, we're of the capability of saying, no, I, I know I'm still like this, but I, I, I know it's really still a problem. Like, at least we can at least, what we do with that, what we do with that is different. But at least I think if you're not saved, you would never even acknowledge that that is, even existed to begin with. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. 
I, I actually want to kind of extend that, but I'm running short on time. But I, I actually have some comments that I'd like to make about that that amplify what you just said. Hebrews 10, 26 through 39, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of, that should be fire, not ire, sorry, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. So again, it's consistent with this theme of obedience, but it's specific. Notice how, notice how in these last couple of passages, what is somewhat essential in its demonstration of the people's wholehearted obedience for the Lord is how they feel about their stuff, right. how they feel about their possessions. Right? So I don't have to draw that out and torture scriptures to do it. In these last two passages that we, we talked about, that was the quintessential evidence that these people loved the Lord with all their hearts and were pursuing an obedient walk with him. I think I'm going to stop there rather than... than uh, uh, is that true? Yes, I think I'm going to stop there rather than keep going. Um, what we'll do next week is um, I want to take you through Old Testament um, passages on tithing. I want you to understand what an Old Testament tithe looked like, right? The Lord is challenging his people about the tithe. I want you to understand what the Old Testament tithe looked like. I suspect that few of you have actually studied it. Maybe a few have. I don't know that I actually had. I have been carrying around a Ph.D. dissertation. I mean, I didn't write it. <laughs> somebody else's PhD dissertation. I've been carrying it around in my Dropbox for like 15 years, and I confess to you that every time I opened it and read the introductory part, I was like, I don't think I want to read this. I'm afraid of what this might provoke in me if I read it. So uh, when I was teaching through this with a small group, I was like, okay, Lord. And I kind of got the paper out and I read it. And it was really good, actually. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. It did not go where I expected it to go exactly. Uh, but it does detail these five uh, specific tithes. And then I'm going to make an outlandish statement, which is the one that uh, I wanted to make sure I was okay with the elders on. There is no mandate for tithing in the New Testament. Right? It's not prescribed, it's not called for, and it's definitely not a tenth. I don't know where we got that from. That was some dumb pastor someplace that figured he looked out. It was nowhere in the scriptures. Forget it. You can't have it. If you want to tithe according to the Old Testament scriptures, 20%, thank you very much, plus a charity tithe. Woohoo! You might have to sell that second house or car or something to get there. And by the way, your kids cannot go to college. <laughs> Okay. Um, it just doesn't exist. Um, I'm not sure where we got it from exactly. Um, I don't really care either because it's not in Scripture, so why study that? Um, but there is no tithe in the New Testament all, at all. And I would argue that it's very satisfying that there is not. The Lord ended the Old Testament by, by getting together with his people and saying, you have taken my, my 
my rules and my structure and, and my mechanisms for great relationship and you have turned them into something that's formalistic, something that's ugly, something that's rote, something that lacks heart, something that is really uh, like a double abomination. It would be better for you not to bring these offerings and these tithes and that obedience because they're, a, they're evidence that you don't have a heart for me. And he begins the New Testament by saying, I no, longer, I no longer am going to hold you to that law in the way that I did because it's just going to provoke you to greater sin. And instead, I'm going to cut to the chase. All of you is all of mine. And so in the New Testament, it's not 20% plus the charity tithe said that right sorry quick math check Um, it's not 20% plus the charity tithe it's everything it's all your possessions They're, they're all his in the New Testament it's said over and over and over again And so we're going to come up with some principles from, we're not going to come up with them, we're going to read the principles in the New Testament uh, where they speak to how we use our um, funds for the glory of the Lord. And, And all they will be is basic guidelines. They will be what I would call the starting point for how we use our wealth for the glory of the Lord. Um. And then I think we're called to, to go well beyond that um, in order to uh, demonstrate a heart for the Lord. And uh, so that's where we're going to finish up uh, next week. And then we will do incision six. And then we will do a summary week. And I think that brings us to the end of your suffering with me. Oh. Um, so that's where we'll head out. Let's pray and we'll be.